Greetings and welcome to Two Ball Guys. My name is Eric Giordano and I'm the Executive Director of the Wisconsin Institute for Public Policy and Service, otherwise known as WIPS. And I'm Dave Anderson, a Senior Policy Fellow at WIPS, and I'd like to welcome you to today's show, Freedom versus Safety in the COVID-19 Environment. We've got some terrific guests lined up representing some of the state's most powerful constituencies, so we look forward to hearing what they have to say and on that note, Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit more about WIPS? Sure, will do. Uh, WIPS was founded in 2007 and is a unit of the University of Wisconsin system. And our mission is to educate and engage citizens, develop future leaders, and help communities address issues that they care about. Uh, by the way, Dave, um, you've been discussing, I've noticed in, in several of our shows, your travails at your favorite barbershop. And you know, I don't go to the barbershop very much anymore. I'm a do-it-yourself kind of guy for obvious reasons. Um, and it just seems a little unnecessary to me uh, to, to just pay money for this. So it got me wondering, how long can I say I'm going bald before I actually acknowledge that I've arrived at my destination? There you go. Um, yeah, so you don't have to answer that, <laughs> but perhaps you can share with our viewers about how they can interact with the two bald guys on our show. Absolutely, Eric, and our viewers can always email us at info at whips.org to share their favorite hair pun or joke, and we're always in need of, uh, of new hair puns and jokes. And during the live show, they can make comments or pose questions to our guests via Facebook uh, on mm -hmm. the chat section. So we would encourage our, our viewers uh, to do that. Um, and speaking of my barber uh, in Madison, I still go to Madison to get my hair cut, although it's been a while since I've been down there. Um, you know, I asked him one time, why do I have to pay the same amount of money to get my hair cut that everybody else has to pay when I have when I have less hair hair to cut? And you know what he told me, Eric? He said, you know, Dave, he said, you're not paying me to cut your hair, you're paying me to find it. That's what he told me. That's what he told me. That's a good one. I like that. That's good. You're getting they're getting better. I, I appreciate that. Um so let's see. Um uh, so let's um, get to our business, I think, right? Uh, and, and before we do, I just want to thank our crack producer, once again, Luke Rudolph, who's sort of our token representative of attractive younger demographic and whom we pay to be our number one fan. So thank you, Luke. Um, Dave, I think we're ready to get to our topic this week. That's right, and it's time to introduce uh, today's guests. So I'd like to welcome all of them to the show. Uh, first of all, let me introduce uh, Mark O'Connell, who serves as the Wisconsin Counties Association Executive Director and has been with the association since 1989. Uh, Mark is president of WCA Services, Inc., serves as an executive officer of the Wisconsin Higher Education Business Roundtable, is vice president of Competitive Wisconsin, and was a principal in the Wisconsin Way effort, among other prominent positions of service throughout Wisconsin. Welcome, Mark. We're glad to have you on the show. Great to uh, be here with two other bald guys. <laughs> we thought about changing the name to three bald guys today, but uh, we didn't want to be too obvious about it. Um, next, let me introduce uh, Eric Osterman. Uh, Eric serves as the executive director of the Wisconsin Association of Local Public Health Departments and Boards and is the founder and president of Badger Bay Management, an association management company founded in 2006, serving more than 10,000 individuals in uh, medical professional societies and public health associations. Prior to creating Badger Bay, he served as the coordinator of a 10 department emergency preparedness consortium in Wisconsin and served as the vice president of membership and professional services 
for the Wisconsin Medical Society. So uh, welcome to you, Eric. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. And finally, I'd like to introduce Scott Manley, uh, who joined Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce in 2005 after serving more than 10 years as a policy advisor in the Wisconsin State Senate. Uh, our paths crossed quite a bit back during uh, those years when uh, Scott was in the state capitol. Uh, Scott serves as chief lobbyist for WMC and oversees um, the government relations program by directing a team of lobbyists and policy experts. Uh, together, they work with legislators and state agency officials to advance WMC's agenda uh, and to make Wisconsin the most competitive state in the nation uh, for jobs and business. He also manages WMC's issue advocacy program, as well as the association's political action efforts. So uh, welcome, Scott. Glad to have you on board. Thanks, Dave. It's my pleasure to join you today. All right, we're going to get right to the questions. Now, um, Mark, this first one was going to be directed at you. Uh, back in May, we had a pretty momentous Supreme Court decision that put an end to the Department of Health Services statewide mandates around COVID. As a result, the issue of um, public health recommendations and requirements have fallen to local government and particularly to counties. So we we're wondering, Mark, to tell, if you could tell us a little bit about how this has affected the counties and how they've decided to deal with it. Now, I'm saying this fully cognizant that we got 72 counties. So uh, however you'd like to take that on. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question, Eric. I mean, it, how did it affect the counties? Uh, lots of, I guess there's lots of angles to that. Uh, one could be, how did it affect county budgets? How are, we, how are we dealing with the challenges that we're facing with reduced sales taxes and reduced economic activity? There, there's that angle. There's also the angle of how are, how are we dealing with the issue of, of addressing COVID locally, county by county, after the Supreme Court decision. And the Supreme Court decision, was, it was interesting. It clarified some areas, but uh, it, it, I guess, muddied uh, uh, some other areas about what authority belongs to who under, under what conditions for what times, types of topics. So um, how are counties dealing with it? It is all over the board. Uh, this COVID-19 has been an incredible challenge that we have no experience in dealing with, not as a state, not as, as individual counties, uh, quite frankly, it, not even as a nation. Uh, while we've had pandemics in the past, and it seems like we've had pandemics every hundred years or so, we haven't gotten good at it as a, as a nation, as a state, or as counties in, in how we deal with it. So how are we dealing with it? Um, it's county by county, clearly. There is, there, when you look at the map of, of where the cases are, much more in the south and many, many fewer the further north you go. So as you go further north, it becomes, um, while it's still an issue, it's not as large an issue. It is not as large of a concern. Uh, the further south you go, and then there's also pockets, let's say the Brown County area, we have Dane County and Milwaukee County. It, it's understandable we have more cases in those counties because they have more people. Uh, in, in addition, however, in those particular counties, except in Brown, by the way, let me just put that aside for a second. In Milwaukee and Dane, the, uh, the incidents per thousand are, are significant. Um, but at the same time, Brown County, if you look at the map, we, we're all aware of Brown County and how they've dealt with it in terms of the spike with the, with the um, uh, meatpacking plant. But when you look at the trend lines, um, we have to be careful how we interpret numbers and statistics. There was a spike. So we've had a lot of cases in Brown County, but the number of active cases in Brown County has gone down substantially. And starting Monday, we as an association with our research arm, Forward Analytics, 
we'll be putting out a tool where everyone can take a look at what your county looks like, how many cases you've had, how many active cases you've had, how many deaths you've had, what the per thousand incident rate has been, and you'll get a much, a very clear picture on, on the impact that COVID-19 has had. Um, individually, I suppose we'll get to this later in the show when we talk about how individual uh, uh, health efforts have occurred county by county, but I guess that's kind of a quick snapshot, Eric. Thank you. You know, on the uh, subject of legal action, I'm going to direct this question to Eric. Um, Eric, just earlier this week, a federal court dismissed on technical grounds a complaint filed by citizens against state officials, as well as uh, uh, quite a number of city and county governments, alleging that they had violated the constitutional rights of Wisconsin citizens by imposing mandatory public health orders or taking other steps in response to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. From your perspective, um, what is this complaint all about? And is there a credible legal argument here uh, that's being made? Yeah, thank, thank you, Dave, for the question. I think that's a good follow-up um, from uh, uh, Mark's question. Um, you know, I, I think the case involves, um, to a large extent, the focus for you know, today's program, which is really balancing what that public health response is what we need to do in order to address uh, a novel virus like the coronavirus in balancing that with um, really requests that we have of individuals to help be part of that response to best address and respond to the, the virus. Um, you know, the, the court case was dismissed on technical grounds. The plaintiffs have an opportunity to, to refile that case. You know, that, that may happen. There may be other cases that are submitted. You know, I, I think from the perspective of the local health departments, the work that we're doing, we feel is, is, is reasonable and appropriate. And it's what's necessary in order to uh, best control this, this novel virus. Okay, so uh, Scott, yeah, thanks. And Scott, we wanna follow up with that. So we know that at least one county, right? Dane County has had uh, imposed rules such as wearing masks, social distancing and other safety measures and actually some fines associated with that. And some other counties were kind of moving in that direction a little bit. I know in Marathon County where I'm based, there was a proposal on the table and the uh, chamber, for example, the, the, the Wasa Area Chamber stepped in and said, wait a minute, you know, we, we, we don't approve of this. This seems a little extreme. So I'd like to ask you about that. How, where does uh, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce come down on uh, whether or not this is appropriate? Well, I, I, I think it's a difficult question to answer. Um, Eric, because the answer to the question is largely fact dependent. I, I think there's no question that there is some authority under the statutes for local governments um, to regulate in this area. And local health departments certainly play a role in you know, trying to get us uh, through this. Um, but I do think that in some instances, local governments don't have the necessary legal authority uh, for their regulations. Um, and I base that on what the Supreme Court said uh, about the authority of the State Department of Health Services, DHS. Um, reading of chapter two, uh, which is our communicable diseases chapter of the statutes, um, grants less authority to local health departments than it does to the state. For example, this, the statutes are very clear. They very explicitly give state regulators the authority to prohibit public gatherings in schools, uh, but, but the statutes make no mention 
of regulating schools in the section related to the powers and the authority of local governments. So there's, there's definitely um, a, a different treatment between the state and local governments in, in that chapter. Um, as well, uh, when we look at chapter 251, um, that chapter makes clear that local government health regulations may not conflict with state statutes or rules promulgated by the state Department of Health Services. So when, when we look at this and we look at legal authority and what is the difference between state authority and local, I think from our perspective, it's pretty clear that there are limitations on local authority in the statutes such that if the state DHS, for example, doesn't have the authority to regulate something, uh, then correspondingly, um, local governments don't have that authority either. So when the, the Supreme Court says, as they, as they did in, in the case in May, that the state DHS can't close businesses, can't quarantine healthy people uh, in their homes, can't restrict travel, et cetera, then uh, local governments, uh, we would argue, can't impose those types of regulations either. As a follow-up, uh, and Mark and Eric, love to, if you have any response here, um, do you agree with that assessment? Are there uh, any circumstances under which health departments locally or at the county level or um, even local government in general has some authority? Yeah, I, I would start um, by sharing a public health perspective on that. I, I don't think it's as simple as I, I don't think it, unfortunately, I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that the conditions within a given community determine what is reasonable and appropriate as it relates to the public health responsibility to manage communicable disease outbreaks. So in the situations where there's a proposed um, limitation on gatherings, you know, that's based on a variety of different circumstances that, you know, in this case are, are specific to a community, but as we're in a global pandemic, it, it's really consistent with what, what others are dealing with as well. But to, to directly answer your question, I, I, I don't think it's that simple. And what the health officers are doing, what public health is doing is looking at the data to make the decision that, that's really best for the community. You know, in the conditions, condition considerations to make and evaluate in those conditions, um, that we need to be mindful of is the, the nature of the virus being novel or unique. We, we don't have a vaccine for that. There is community spread. There, the trajectory of cases continues to grow. And so the unique nature of what we're dealing with in, in limited resources in order to adequately respond to that, those considerations I, I think all need to be factored together in determining what what tools, if you will, does that local health officer, does that public health department, does that community have in order to maintain and control that spread of that disease? And I think to your earlier question about the court case, you know, I, I think what's most difficult in this situation is that we're pitting what shouldn't be you know, mutually exclusive concepts against each other. Uh, the, the public health community, all of us, I think share common interest in you know protecting you know ourselves, our neighbors, our families, et cetera. You know sometimes that requires individual action that that for a prolonged period of time that may be perceived to be a limitation on rights, but it's really intended for the greater good, which is to limit, control, mitigate, eliminate the spread of that virus. Yeah, I guess if if I could, I would just add to that that. I don't think that there's any doubt that what local health departments are doing 
uh, is reflective of what they think is in the best interest of their community or what they think the data suggests they could do. Um, no argument about that. But at the same time, you the other you know relevant piece of this is what do you actually have the authority to do? And sometimes what you think is the best approach uh, doesn't fit squarely within the four corners of what the law says and what legal authority is. And so there there has to be a balance between uh, from a public health standpoint and and what local governments are going to do with what they think is best and with what the law actually allows. Dave, do you mind if I ask Mark a quick follow-up? Uh, Mark, oh, please. How, what kind of advice or counsel or you know whatever resources are you are you providing or can you even provide to uh, county government around these really clearly difficult technical issues around who has authority and who doesn't? Yeah, the the, the pandemic, uh, among the many negatives that it has uh, heaped upon society, uh, has also pointed out. Uh, some of the some of the holes that we have, uh, and as as Scott pointed out, uh, and, and Eric alluded to as well, um, the what it pointed out is that we didn't really anticipate this kind of a challenge, societal challenge, in our state statutes. So we haven't addressed exactly who has what authority to do to take specific actions under this particular set of circumstances. So I, I suspect what we what we will see is if, and I, I hope when, the, this COVID-19 goes away or we all get vaccinated, that we're going to address this uh, and clarify our statutes so that we don't have these questions that go before the court. Now, directly to your, to your point, Eric, or to your question, we provided an enormous amount of guidance uh, to, our, to our localities on a whole host of, of issues. Everything from operations of the county, uh, to the extent that we can on, on what a, a, an entity can and cannot do, our county can and cannot do. Um, the, the court case, one of the things it pointed out is that if we are going to take uh, some action at the local level, we, we need some body of, of, of law that we can point to. Uh, for a county that doesn't have an ordinance in place, there's really not a body of law locally to point to, so you'd have to point to state statute. The state statute is, it's, it's not as clear, I think, as all of us might desire. If you do have a local body of law, that local body of law has to be consistent with state statute or what state statute would permit a local a locality to, to, to pass. Um, so what we've done in part to help clarify that area or at least add some assistance to that area, we put together a, a public health work group. Um, um, Eric is on that group. We have a sheriff on the group. We have a, a business person on the group, restaurant association on the group, uh, a lot of attorneys on the group, city folks, uh, to, to look at what body of knowledge can we convey to our, our, our counties and in some cases cities, because we do have some city health departments, uh, so that they might either modify their current body of law in an ordinance or create one if they desire. I've asked that group to look at really four, I guess I would call them guideposts. Number one, whatever an entity comes up with, it, it ought to protect public health, clearly. Number two, uh, it has to be able to be implemented. In other words, it, it needs to be practical. Uh, can we actually do what it is that we, we think would, would protect public health? Three, it has to be enforceable. Uh, there has to be 
some teeth in it. Now we would hope for voluntary compliance, but it has to be enforceable. In other words, um, if we said, uh, if you are alone in your home in a closet uh, you, and you have, to, you have to wear a mask, Otherwise, you're going to get a fine. Is that enforceable? No, it's not really enforceable. So it has to be practical and enforceable. And then fourthly, uh, how will the public receive it? Uh, really, the, the, I think part of the secret in addressing a pandemic or the challenge of COVID-19 is the public buying into whatever it is we might be doing as a nation, as a state, or as a locality. Uh, and if we, as, as from the health community or local government community, if we are reasonable in what we are asking citizens to do, you will get great voluntary compliance. But that's, it's a very delicate balance. And if we flip over into the public thinking what we're asking for is unreasonable, then we, we lose the voluntary compliance. In fact, we might even get negative reaction from those that are generally willing to comply, but, but feel that they're being infringed upon. Uh, in their in their freedoms, so it's it's very it's very delicate, and we've tried to provide guidance to our counties on um, assessing or uh, determining where that balance is, so that we get the public uh, with whatever it is we might do locally, and it's different county by county. What we really want the public to do is say, "I see what they're saying; it makes sense to me. I understand why. Yes, uh, I'll do that." Uh, as opposed to, wait a minute, you had me on the first three things, but now that fourth one, you went too far. So now I'm not even going to do the first three. That, that's where we, we've lost it and we lose our, our, the ability to impact or battle this COVID-19 pandemic. So that's a long answer, Eric. I apologize, but we provided a lot of information to our counties uh, on what it is they, they well, what they generally can and generally cannot do. But it isn't quite so clear as looking at a list and saying, that's the list of things you can do. That's the list of things you can't. It's Well, we appreciate, I appreciate that answer actually. Uh, that's very helpful. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a follow-up uh, kind of related to this. Uh, you know, as a lifelong student of government, actually a lifelong, uh, almost a lifelong participant in government, I'm struck by the complexity of this issue in terms of the relationships between local government, state government, the private sector, and public sector. Um, and, um, you know, I, I watch the news every night and, uh, you know, I see now more and more cities are imposing mask requirements in their own communities. I think we're up to uh, five or six now that uh, that are requiring masks to be worn publicly. D does the fact that that we're seeing more attention being paid to this at the city level add to the complexity of, of the discussions that are already going on relative to COVID-19? Just, just kind of curious what your take might be on that. Uh, it, it, yes, uh, every element, <laughs> masks, no masks, uh, statements at the federal level, lack of state, changing statements. <clears throat> I mean, even, even Dr. Fauci, I mean, if, if people look back at the history of this, early on, Dr. Fauci says, no, masks uh, don't help at all, irrelevant, don't need to wear them. Now, absolutely need to wear them. I, I, what it points out, and that's just one small example, what it points out is none of us really know. I mean, we, none of us really have our, uh, an absolute grasp 
on, on this COVID-19, on exactly how it goes from person to person, on exactly what the impact will be, on exactly who is going to get uh, uh, ill and how it will affect them, exactly on what the answer is, exactly how long they'll be in the, in the hospital. We don't know this. None of us know this. The top uh, uh, medical experts in the country don't know it. What we do know is that it definitely affects people. It affects us differently. It affects different populations differently. It affects different geographic areas differently. So that, I think in part, is why our legislature in Wisconsin said, we need to have a localized approach to this. One size doesn't fit all. So the court case came along and part of what, what we heard people say is, the locals should take care of this. And it's different locality by locality, which does make it different. It does give us a patchwork, but it, it, it's, it's probably a better approach than a statewide blanket uh, approach. If I could follow up on that, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd like to share a different perspective. I, I, I'm not, I think there's more epidemiological data than that to give us more information from which to base good policy on and to determine plans and responses to the pandemic. And I, I do agree with, with Mark that things are different now than they were earlier. The, the change in position on masking has changed, but that's evolved as time has gone on. I think as more and more time goes by, more data is available. I think we are learning more specifics about the virus. Um, and as it relates to local conditions, it really is unfortunate that from from my perspective, it's unfortunate that we're in a position that we're dealing with this on a case-by-case, community-by-community basis. You know, if it was a if it was an other communicable disease outbreak, if it was a norovirus outbreak within a school, there would be a very singular community response to that because there is not a great likelihood that that's going to be affecting other communities. We're dealing with a global pandemic, and so I respectfully suggest that it, it is not a community-community situation. I think those communities that might have, might be seeing less impact right now, are, you know, behind the curve. But as more and more people are moving around, you know, the cases that maybe we thought we'd see in northern Wisconsin might be back in Illinois by now, right? Um, so I, I, I think. We, the, the facts are it's a, it's a global pandemic. It's a highly transmissible virus. We don't have a vaccine for it. I don't think there's much that's local or specific about it that warrants a patchwork response. That said, that's the situation that we're in right now. And so I think, you know, it's important for us to adapt to the conditions that we're in. And those conditions might be environmental, um, epidemiological, political. And, and that's what we're working on. I want to thank Mark and WCA for convening the work group to look at the guidance, because my opinion is we shouldn't be doing this patchwork. The reality is that's the situation that we're in right now. And so we need to work together to make the best of that situation moving forward. And, you know, that's, that's what we're doing. Scott, do you want to weigh in on any of this uh, conversation? Well, I'll, I'll just say I'll keep it short uh, because I largely agree with what Mark said. Um, and, you know, I think to, to, to Eric's point, you know, he, he'd prefer to have a, a statewide, uh, you know, sort of uniform response to this as opposed to, to different responses that are kind of tailored to what's going on in each community. And, you know, perhaps that makes some sense uh, when you're looking at this through the through the lens of, an epidemiologist, um, but when you look at this through the lens of 
um, people need to put food on their tables and people need to keep gainful employment and businesses need to continue to operate. I think the analysis isn't quite that simple. And I think that looking at it from that vantage point actually argues in favor of um, trying to tailor uh, things that are, you know, responses, policy responses uh, to, to this, um, you know, more toward, you know, what's actually happening in, in a given community um, as opposed to what I would characterize as a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit here. Um, clearly, COVID-19 cases have begun to surge after states have been reopening their economies, including right here in the state of Wisconsin. What, what do you think from your perspectives? What did we do or what did we not do that has contributed to this kind of surge in, in cases uh, in our state and, of course, in other states across the country? Do, you, do the three of you have any thoughts on that? I'd be happy to go first. Um, you know, I think we'd been on a pretty promising trajectory in terms of reducing the percentage of, of positive tests, reducing the number of COVID-related hospitalizations. And then we hit an inflection point um, for increased positive tests right around mid to late June um, and, and, and an, an inflection point in terms of increased hospitalizations in early July. Um, and Dave, as you noted, people have suggested that it, this is all about reopening the economy and that's why we're seeing a surge, but I'm, I'm not sure that's really what the data is telling us. The Supreme Court overturned Governor Evers' safer at home order on May 15th. So we'd been reopened for over a month um, and had been seeing continued uh, declining positive test percentages and hospitalizations and deaths um, during that period that was, you know, four or five, six weeks after we reopened. Um, so why, why did we see the spike um, in late June and early July? I mean, I guess from, from I'm not an epidemiologist, but, um, you know, perhaps it's due to multiple factors. Maybe it's not, you know, just one single thing. But if the CDC and the medical community's warnings about the need for social distancing are accurate, and, and I happen to think that they are, then having weeks of prolonged protesting where hundreds or even thousands of people are gathered together shoulder to shoulder probably didn't help. And I want to be very clear here. I'm not making a value judgment about whether or not people should have been protesting. Peaceful protesting is a cherished right. Um, it's guaranteed by our constitution uh, and, and people can and should exercise that right. But the news footage that I saw uh, of the protesting in Madison, in Milwaukee, in Chicago, uh, in Washington, DC, really all over the country where protesting was happening um, was not at all consistent with what the CDC tells us about how to safely uh, do mass gatherings with physical distancing. And I think if, if you look at the counties in Wisconsin that have seen the biggest spike since late June and early July, notably Dane and Milwaukee counties, they happen to be where the vast majority of protests occurred. 
Um, again, I'm not making a, a judgment about peaceful protesting. Um, as I noted, it, it's a constitutional right. But I think the data speaks, speaks for itself. And I think we would be naive to think uh, that it didn't play any role at all in the, the number of increased infections and infection rates. Uh, any responses or yeah. comments from Mark or Eric? Yeah, I, I would share. I think that um, the gathering of individuals after the order was lifted, you know, whether it's at, you know, a protest or, or whatever, I think, I think people gathering creates a greater likelihood of transmission. And, and we know there's community spread of this virus. There's the, the ability to control the spread depends on the ability to control the movement of individuals. I, I, I would share that what, what's changed, um, you know, I, I, I think the lifting of the order, um, I think what the data shows is the age groups that, are, that we're seeing more cases from um, tend to be more mobile. I mean, the, the 20 to 29 year old age group is, is one that a lot of public health professionals will look at where there's a higher amount of cases amongst that age group. Um, you know, they're, you know, more social travel, interacting, you know, bigger circles. Um, I, I think a couple of other factors though, to keep in mind is even if we open up and I, you know, I'm not saying we're in a situation where we're opened up. I don't think these need to be mutually exclusive goals. We, we open up and I still think there's an ability for people to practice responsible physical distancing. And that's just not happening consistently. Um, you know, I, I think a couple of things that I'd, I'd like to see different is more consistent messaging and information that's shared um, so that the public is, is a better idea of what are the best practices. If we can consistently talking about masking, washing your hands, physical distancing, you know, maybe we don't have to have bans on gatherings as opposed to people voluntarily complying with those three simple steps. Um, I think the lack of compliance amongst those who are confirmed cases has been a problem as well. So that individuals who test positive, that public health follows up with and contacts and identifies, you know, individuals that are, you know, potential, you know, potentially at risk of having been exposed, the compliance amongst and the response to the disease investigation that's done, you know, isn't, isn't consistent and isn't 100% either. And so, you know, I would share the, the movement of the public beyond what might be a, a reasonable amount of physical distancing and the lack of compliance and the amount of misinformation that gets shared or different messages, I, I think are, are things that, you know, we can certainly work together to, to address. And I think that would help with our cases uh, if we're not gonna go back to, a, you know, a, a, a more restrictive ban on gathering. I guess I would, I would add, <clears throat> I think uh, Eric and Scott pointed out some of the things that, <clears throat> um, you know, did occur, <clears throat> which might've led or contributed to the, to the increased numbers. Um, but in, in response to your question, Dave, what did we do or not do that, that may have led to this? Um, I'm not aware of any, any area of the country that you can point to and say, aha, they got it right. Everything is, is working out perfectly. 
So I, I don't know that there is a good answer to that. I mean, there's so many factors that, that would go into it. Uh, gatherings of individuals for whatever purpose, uh, uh, community spread, young people, uh, mobility of folks, all of those things contribute. Um, maybe it, the president might say, uh, we increase testing, so you're gonna find out more cases. All of these things probably lead into, lead into that. Uh, what did we not do that might have led into that? Um, I mean, that was, that was sort of, that was seen to indicate a self-reflection that uh, we should have done something differently. And <clears throat> while there might be a post-mortem uh, down the road that we can do to see how we might do things differently or better in the future, at any particular moment in time, I would suggest to you that society, uh, and, and let's put uh, public health at the point of that spear, did what they believed was best at that particular moment. So it's, it's just like uh, any one of us, when at, at the end of the week, we might look in our wallet and say, gee, I started with $100. I only have 13 left. I mean, what did I waste it on? Well, at every moment when you spent dollars, you believe that was the absolute right thing to spend money on. So does it pay to go back and say exactly where did I spend the 87? Well, you could. But at the same time, whenever you made that decision, you were making the absolute right decision. I, I've often said in regard to public health, and I don't want to... I want to end the show without being able to talk about this a little bit. Um, the, as the saying goes, public health saved your life today. You just didn't know it. Well, in this COVID-19 environment, public health saved your, your life today. And now we, we, we do know it. Uh, we may not want to believe it. We may not want to say me specifically, but public health, we're asking public health to do an awful lot today. We're asking them to manage this COVID-19 issue, to make decisions which are going to put society in a better place. We're asking, and then at the same time, we're asking them to be public relations experts. We're asking them to interact and be persuaders of the public. We're asking an awful lot of our public health professionals. And quite frankly, I think we're asking too much. Uh, this is a, a challenge that requires a, a multifaceted um, I, I guess, addressing uh, a, a team approach. And that's everyone. I, I don't know anyone. I've not run into anyone, business community, public sector, private sector, individual citizens that are happy with this environment. No, no one is. Everyone would like it to go away. And everyone is, in my opinion, people are willing to do anything that's reasonable to move us in that direction. The, 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 the question is which items are, are reasonable, at what time, in what location, for how long. These are the challenges that we face uh, as government and society on a daily basis with COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree with you, Mark, that uh, nobody is happy with COVID-19, right? Let's face it. Um, I guess one of the arguments uh, has been, at least since you know May, that uh, increasing evidence was showing that, you know, using PPE, masks, uh, physical distancing, hand washing were definitely in the CDC guidelines. And evidence was showing in other countries that those that had practiced those things more uniformly, more regularly, actually were improving um, the decrease in, in the rate of spread. Uh, and we have seen the United States in general become a hotspot for increase. So, I think we're seeing some results in the sense that people are starting to recalibrate a little bit, right? I mean, the president of the United States is, has recalibrated his message. 
things like the conventions, the, the Republican and Democratic conventions are going virtual, basically. Um, and, and we're starting to hear more messaging. So I guess what I'm getting to is, have we reached some kind of consensus, in your opinion, that we really ought to be uh, increasing and, and really considering how to message the wearing of masks on a regular basis, everybody, uh, physical distancing, everybody, <laughs> um, washing your hands frequently, everybody, or are we still going to be in a patchwork um, approach? Well, I'll answer that. I'll, let me go first on that. Uh, I don't see a lot of disagreement with that, that at all. Uh, the hand washing, the social distancing, wearing masks, I, I really don't. We just did a piece and it'll be coming out. It should be playing here in the next little bit. And I want to make sure I mention the groups so I, we get them all. Um, the Wisconsin Restaurant Association, Wisconsin Medical Society, Wisconsin Hospital Association, Wisconsin Realtors Association, uh, the Grocers, uh, the Wisconsin Safety Council, Wisconsin Builders Association, and the Wisconsin Counties Association. We all went together and produced this public service announcement where, where we have real people talking about, yeah, wear a mask, wash your hands, social distance. I mean, that's going to help keep this thing down until we have a permanent solution. So I, I don't know that there's a lot of disagreement with that. And I, I know people get kind of excited, uh, uh, irritated, annoyed about being told what it is they should or should not do. I mean, if there are some places that are, are asking you to wear a mask and you just dislike it that much, maybe go somewhere else. Uh, but there's, these are not overly difficult things we're asking people to, to do. I would follow up on that and just share that I, I think sometimes maybe more often than not during this pandemic, we're focusing on, you know, the negative or um, kind of the exception and not the norm. And to follow up on what Mark is sharing, I think the PSA that's running this week um, is an excellent example of where there's probably more agreement on what those best practices are, what the difference in opinion is, you know, maybe, you know, the requirement of that, um, you know, the, the voluntary compliance with recommended best practices is, is fantastic. And that's where I think we need to strive to get to. And if we can't get there, then what? But I think the PSA is an excellent example of multiple organizations with a large number of the population represented by those organizations, you know, taking a position that those are good practices. And I, I think, you know, Mark's members, I think Scott's members, there's, there's a lot of organizations out there they're doing great work, you know, within their respective communities. And, and that needs to be recognized and appreciated. And, and I think the more that happens, you know, we get to that place where we can, you know, make the difference, bend the curve, flatten the curve. You know, if we're not going to have required, act, required activity, that voluntary compliance is essential. And, and again, I think there's more, more of that happening than maybe what we give credit to. And we need to do what we can to encourage more to be doing that. I think that PSA, uh, I'd love to see, uh, if you could get us a link to that, we'll make sure we put that up on our, um, on our Facebook page, thanks. Yeah, I'll send a link to you, Eric. I mean, it, it kind of goes to, the, to the, the last point I've asked the, the, the work group to look at as a guidepost. When, when, when people hear wash your hands, social distance, uh, wear a mask, you know, wear appropriate, the general public generally will look at that and say, yeah, that, you know, that's reasonable. I, I, I can do that. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's a reasonable ask. 
It's not taken making me change my life dramatically. I may not like it when I put on a mask before I go into uh, the local hardware store, but I, you know, I get it. So I'll, I'll do that. The vast majority of people, I mean, I know we see things on, you know, social media that, that where people get really excited about being asked to, to, to act in a particular way, but that's the, that's the exception, not the norm. And you can see, as Eric pointed out, these groups here, um, it's, there's a lot of people represented by these groups and a lot of different perspectives. Uh, it's business, it's public, and, and the, the, the reasonable asks. You know, as we, as a concluding thought, as we contemplate uh, the government response to COVID-19, do you think Americans and Wisconsinites should be concerned about too much government power encroaching on personal freedoms? Is, do you think this is a real risk? So maybe it's a kind of a conclusion to our great conversation today. What are your what are your thoughts on that? I, I'll I'll take this one first, I guess. Um, I think that it's definitely a risk. Um, you know, we're a country that was founded on the idea that too much consolidation of power in government uh, will inevitably encroach on freedom, and so I think it it's a it's a best practice for people to always be wary of, of government getting too big or powerful, whether we're talking about COVID or some other aspect of, of government regulation. Um, I, I guess I would, I would hold out the, the Supreme Court ruling uh, as an example of, of government, uh, you know, perhaps going too far in as much as they said that certain aspects of the safer at home order uh, were were outside of the legal authority that the that the legislature had conferred upon uh, the Department of Health Services. I think a, a, another example of that, um, you know, th that I think is is really troubling from from our perspective, is what happened with in, in the city of Racine um, with the with the mayor of Racine. Corey Mason, who denied a citizen financial relief for his small business as part of the city's COVID uh, relief uh, grant program, simply because uh, the mayor disagreed with the gentleman's political activism. I mean, in that, in that case, the mayor literally said that we're not going to provide financial relief because you, the person attended the 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 uh, political protest rally uh, that was held at the Capitol, um, which is a guaranteed right under the Constitution. Um, I think that's wrong. Um, I don't know how we defend that. Um, government's supposed to treat people equally. We're not supposed to play favorites or punish people based on uh, what their political beliefs are. Um, so I think, um, and I'm I use that as, as a point to illustrate that, that there, there can be, uh, you know, abuses of power. I want to be clear, though, however, I, I think that most local governments are doing the best that they can um, and are not engaging in, uh, you know, abusive types of, uh, you know, of regulations that, that uh, you know, trample on people's freedoms and so forth. I think we've we've got some questions in our mind of, about the legality of of some of what uh, Dane County has uh, imposed in Dane County and so forth. But I think by and large, you know, this is 
this has been one of those instances where, as Mark said, I think pretty eloquently before, we don't always know what the right thing to do here is. Um, from our perspective, whatever that right thing to do is, we wanna make sure that it's within the four corners uh, of the law and that it's, uh, that it's fair, that it's practical, um, and that whatever it is, is going to be uh, administered and enforced uh, evenly among uh, the regulated community and the general public. I, I, I guess I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go next, I guess. Um, if I can kind of rephrase your question, Dave, um, you know, should Americans be concerned about their personal freedoms in regard to government? Um, that's an interesting question. And it's a, it's a sliding scale. It's a balancing test and it's an it's issue specific. I mean, I, it, it wasn't just too long ago. Um, I guess we're coming up on, on 20 years next year, but 9-11 occurred. And shortly after that, we passed legislation as a nation, which uh, some would argue um, brought government more into our lives. But we were okay with that because we, it made us safer. Uh, and, and, and so we, we were okay with that. Um, let's fast forward just, just a few, maybe a decade or so. Let's actually go right now. I mean, Google and Facebook know more about you than you do. I mean, uh, so are they, is that government? Well, not really, but are we okay with entities knowing a lot more about us, which might impact uh, our freedom. I mean, I, I, I'm amazed sometimes when we had the, you know, there was the, the big uh, accusations of Facebook uh, interacting with the government and sharing all their information about you and people getting all excited because why should people know all these things about me? Well, I, I think when you go on Facebook and you catalog every moment of your life, you really shouldn't be surprised if everyone knows everything about you, including the government. So, it's, it's a sliding scale when it comes to uh, concern about personal freedom. Um, when, when America feels that giving up of some personal freedom makes us safer, our history has been, I, I'm willing to give that up. But when we don't feel that, when, when we feel that personal freedoms are being infringed upon, but it's not for my safety or the safety of my children or grandchildren, or for the, or in some cases, betterment of society, then America resists. And there's example after example after example throughout history uh, of that. So where are we with, with this, with, with COVID-19? I'm not sure that we know yet where we are. And we may not know for years after the fact. Uh, we know what 9-11, that's pretty clear. And we've become very comfortable with that. Do we know what COVID-19? No, probably not yet. Do we know what the next, with the next terrible incident in our nation, whether it's a pandemic or another uh, terrorist attack? Well, we don't know that yet either, but it's, it's a sliding scale. And should we, should we be concerned? Well, we're America. It's based on freedom. It's based on personal choice and personal freedom. So should we be concerned? We should be mindful. We should be aware. Um, and then on a case-by-case -case basis, we as a nation make a decision about how much of our personal freedom we're willing to compromise uh, for the betterment of our preservation of our future or, or to feel safe. Eric, you get the last word. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you both for uh, hosting this program. I, I think that's, you know, certainly the, the question at the table for today's, today's program and our discussion. I, I think it'll always be a question. And I think we always need to be mindful of it. I, I think Mark said that well, that, you know, th those questions are always going to be at the table, especially when we're dealing with a situation like we are right now. I think more specifically, when we look at the application of public health practice and public health law, you know, that's where we see this question come up quite a bit because we're looking at balancing, you know, we're, we're at times where we're looking at the decision being, you know, individual rights or the, the greater good of the, the whole. And that, that's a difficult conversation to have. I think what we need to do, what, what public health does all the time is, is try to try to balance that. And again, I don't think it's one or the other. I, I think it's making sure that we're protecting the health of our community and, and where that is perceived to, to, to limit individual rights. We need to have a discussion and a dialogue that we're like we're having right now. And, and the, the, the more we're on the same page, the better off we're all going to be. I, I can't tell you there isn't a public health professional out there that wants to you know, we're not looking at permanently limiting anybody's individual rights. And again, I, I think the, the work and the actions that are done, you know, are, are fully intended, you know, for the greater good and, and for the community and, and for the individual's health um, as well. So I, I think meetings, discussion like this are, are really part of that solution. We need to have open, honest dialogue with each other, you know, to make sure that we're aware of what the, you know, concerns might be. Uh, and the questions and, and address those to be better off as a community. Well, we really thank all three of you. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, so Mark O'Connell, Scott Manley, Eric Osterman, thank you so much. We appreciate the work that you do. And in particular, the thousands of people, organizations and businesses that you represent and the work that they do uh, here in Wisconsin. Uh, so thank you. Once again, we sincerely apologize to Dwayne The Rock Johnson for running out of time. We certainly hope he'll be here next week. Um, Dave, any comments? Uh, no, I just want to thank our guests as well. I think this has been a fabulous conversation, a great discussion. Uh, just a reminder to our viewers or our viewer, I'm not quite sure how many people we have out there today, uh, but uh, we will be back uh, next Friday at noon. Uh, we're working on a very exciting and interesting topic for next week as well. So stay tuned uh, to learn uh, what that is. So Eric, back to you. Well, so, you know, today's program reminds me how, is it, how important it is in these times to keep a stiff upper clip. And I'm glad to see that you're taking that advice quite literally, Dave. You know, Eric, I asked you a really difficult question at the close of last week's show and you didn't bring an answer forth. So I think you must be still thinking about it. So I wanna remind our viewers what that question was and we're gonna expect you to answer it next week. So when you, when you wash your face, exactly how far up do you have to go? So okay. Okay. we want that's... the answer next week. All right, that's fine. <laughs> You're, I'm gonna be thinking a long time and you gotta come up with some new material. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.